In our study of the tribulation based on Revelation, we've reached the middle of the tribulation. Revelation 10 is an interlude where a mighty angel whose description resembles Christ stands on the earth as a sign of divine dominion and announces that in the days of the sounding of the seventh trumpet, all things would be completed. Thus the seventh trumpet covers the whole second half of the tribulation. This interlude announcing the seventh trumpet points to a further escalation. John was then given a little book containing revelation of what would happen next, which he ate. It was like honey in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. He was then told to prophesy. This is a picture of teaching. We must eat the word until it's part of us. Only then are we ready to proclaim it. It tastes sweet like honey because of the revelation of God's grace, but it also contains bitter truths about God's judgment. While we are to enjoy the prophetic scriptures, what they reveal about God's coming judgments on the lost should spur us to prayer and witness. Revelation 11 describes the death and resurrection of the two witnesses at mid-tribulation, but first in verse 1 to 6 we're told about their miraculous ministry during the th first three and a half years of the tribulation. The setting is the Temple Mount, which has been partitioned between the Jews and Gentiles, allowing the Jews to worship in their own temple. This arrangement was made possible by the covenant Israel made with the Antichrist. This must be so, for Daniel 9.27, which introduces this covenant, also says that Antichrist will break it at mid-tribulation by stopping the Jewish worship at the temple. From that point, the Gentiles under Antichrist tread Jerusalem underfoot for 42 months. This is to be distinguished from the 1,260 days of the ministry of the two witnesses in the first half of the tribulation. Both periods are the same length, but the two different descriptions indicate two different time periods. The two witnesses play a vital role in bringing Israel back to the Lord by ministering at the temple, which will be the prime location to get Israel's attention. They're clothed in sackcloth, for they're calling Israel to repentance. All Israel will come to her temple, and the sacrificial system will, will be restored, but it's all in God's plan, because while they're offering sacrifices, these two will be preaching Jesus Christ, declaring that he's already died for them as the final sacrifice. Naturally, the authorities try and remove them, but verse 5 says that anyone who tries to harm them gets killed by fire from their mouths. Also, verse 6 tells us that they've got power to stop the rain for three and a half years. And these are the miracles that Elijah did. Also, they can turn waters to blood and strike the earth with plagues, reminding us of what Moses did. So these miracles are one pointer as to their identity. Verse 4 points out that they'll also have a worldwide ministry, for they stand before the Lord of all the earth in fulfillment of Zechariah 4.14. This will be through TV, for they'll be regulars on the world news. When they're killed, verse 10 tells us that the whole world rejoices, for they tormented those who dwell on the earth. This refers to the trumpet judgments that will affect all upon the earth. So why do these two get the blame? Amos 3.7 says God does nothing unless he first reveals it to his prophets. So just before any of the trumpets are blown, through the TV cameras they announce it in advance to the world, just as Moses did with Pharaoh. In this way they'll strike the earth with plagues, as verse 6 says. Thus the world knew that these two had called down all the judgments. The two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. The last prophecy of the Old Testament is, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So Elijah must return to Israel before Christ returns in order to prepare the way. 
That's why a seat is reserved for Elijah at every Passover meal. When the disciples asked Jesus about this prophecy in Matthew 17, Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and was rejected. As Jesus spoke on the kingdom, he said in Matthew 11:14, if you're willing to accept it, that's the kingdom, John himself is Elijah who was to come. At the first coming, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for three and a half years in the spirit and place of Elijah, as he knew Israel would reject the kingdom, thus holding Elijah back for the successful fulfillment of this prophecy through his three and a half year ministry as one of the two witnesses. So there's no doubt that Elijah is one of these two witnesses. Remember, he never died, but went up in a chariot. So God's preserving his body for this end time ministry. Some say Enoch is the other witness, but their main ministry is to restore Israel to God, so Moses is the better candidate. Although Moses died, Jude 9 tells us that Michael came for his body and was opposed by the devil. It seems that God has preserved his body for a future purpose. It was Moses and Elijah who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so God obviously marks out these two for a special role. Luke 24 tells us, at the resurrection, two men appeared to the women, who'd, and these men had witnessed an earlier conversation Jesus had had with them. These two men also witnessed the ascension, saying, Jesus will return in the same way that he went up. That's in Acts 1. So, they were present on earth as eyewitnesses of all the events of the last days of Jesus. This is why their ministry is described as their testimony in verse 7. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will kill them. This is the Antichrist, who had just received a counterfeit death and resurrection. Revelation 13.3 says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Verse 14 says, they make an image to the beast, who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So Revelation 11 says that the Antichrist, who just received a resurrection from the dead, comes to the temple and kills the two witnesses. Then verse 8 says, their dead bodies will lie in the street, literally the plaza or broad place of the great city, where also their Lord was crucified. This is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This link to Christ's death connects their experience to the Lord's, anticipating their resurrection after three days. Verse 9 and 10 says that the whole world will look at their dead bodies over the next three and a half days, for they don't permit them to be buried. This shows there's advanced technology in the tribulation, for this is only possible through satellite TV. The whole world has a party for three and a half days until God interrupts it by raising them from the dead, bringing great fear on all who are watching them, uh, which was the whole world. Then a loud voice from heaven says, come up here, and they ascended into heaven with the, their enemies watching. In other words, the whole world sees this on TV. They'd been preaching Jesus as the Messiah, proved by his death and resurrection after three days, and now God was giving Israel the final confirmation of their message, the third sign of Jonah. Although a great earthquake hits Jerusalem, killing 7,000, the rest glorify God in verse 13. So this is a major event, turning Israel back to the Lord. Verse 14 announces, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. In other words, their resurrection at mid-tribulation marks the end of the sixth trumpet, and the seventh trumpet will follow immediately, initiating the great tribulation. 
Then, in verse 15, the seventh trumpet is sounded, resulting in great rejoicing in heaven. The seventh trumpet contains all the remaining judgments leading up to the second coming, including the seven bowls of wrath. So the seventh seal contains the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls of wrath. Heaven rejoices in the completion of God's judgments announced by the seventh trumpet, which includes the overthrow of Antichrist's kingdom, the kingdom of this world, by Christ's everlasting kingdom, and the resurrection and judgment of the Old Testament saints at the second coming, and the destruction and removal from the earth of all of God's enemies. The event on earth that triggers the seventh trumpet is the abomination that brings desolation. Daniel 9.27 says, Halfway through the 70th week, Antichrist takes over the temple, stops the sacrifices, and sets up the abomination, which is an idol to a false god, in this case himself. It's referred to as the image of the beast in Revelation 13. His aim at this time is not just total political power, but also total financial and religious power. He asserts financial control through the mark of the beast, and religious control by destroying the dominant religious system at that time, the harlot of Revelation 17, replacing it with a religion that centers on himself as God. He also tries to destroy the Jewish religion. He speaks against the God of Israel and instigates a massive persecution of all the Jews. In all this, he fulfills the type of Antiochus Epiphanes. In order to take over the temple, the center of their faith, he must first defeat the two witnesses, for they control it. Then he makes the temple the center of his new religion, dedicating it to himself, declaring himself as God, and setting up his abomination in the, in the holy place. No wonder God responds to this abomination by releasing desolating judgments on Antichrist's realm through the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which clearly moves things up another level. Jesus said in Matthew 24:15 that this abomination of desolation was a sign for those in Israel to flee immediately to the mountains of Jordan where God's prepared a place of safety for them. Jesus gave the reason for this flight in verse 21. Then there'll be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. Verse 22 says that it's especially bad for the elect nation Israel for whose sake he returns otherwise no one would survive. So the abomination initiates the seventh trumpet and the great tribulation when Antichrist unleashes a massive persecution against the Jews, twice as bad as the Holocaust. Because Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says that only a third of Jews will survive the tribulation, but those who do will all be saved. Jesus got this name Great Tribulation from Jeremiah 37, which says, This day is great, the time of Jacob's trouble or tribulation. This escape at mid-tribulation is described in Revelation 12, in a vision of a woman related to the sun, moon, and twelve stars. These symbols point us to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, and prove that she's Israel. The woman gave birth to a man-child, who is destined to rule the world. Satan, the dragon, tries to kill him at birth, but he escapes, fulfills his mission, and ascends to heaven. Clearly, this is the Messiah who came into the earth through Israel. Having failed to destroy Christ, the dragon now focuses on destroying the woman, Israel, which reveals the true source of anti-Semitism. At this point in verse 6, the prophecy jumps to mid-tribulation, when the woman flees from the dragon into the wilderness to a place prepared by God where she's kept safe and nourished for the three and a half years of the great tribulation. So this fleeing woman is the believing remnant of Israel, for only those who believe in Jesus will heed his warning to flee at the sight of the abomination.
At this point, in verse 7 to 9, as part of his mandate to protect Israel, Michael with his angels wages war on the dragon and his angels. This takes place in the first heaven, the earth's atmosphere, where Satan presently operates as the prince of the power of the air. When Satan originally rebelled, he was thrown out of the third heaven, down to the earth and its atmosphere. Jesus said he saw him fall like lightning in Luke 10. So, he no longer has access to God's heaven. The events of Job 1, with angels reporting back to the Lord and being joined by the devil, actually took place on the earth, just as in a similar scene in Zechariah 1. Yes, Satan does constantly accuse the saints before God, but he doesn't have to make constant visits to heaven to do this. Now, as a result of this war at mid-tribulation, Satan and his angels are cast out of the first heaven and are forced to dwell on the earth's surface. In verse 9, we see the two sides of evil. The dragon who intimidates is also the serpent who deceives. Now the devil has been cast down, he knows he's only got a short time to thwart God's plan, which centers on Israel, so he tries to destroy Israel. First, he goes after the fleeing woman, but God supernaturally protects her and enables her to escape to her place of safety in Jordan, where she dwells for three and a half years. The flood coming out of the devil's mouth is probably symbolic of an army, which God swallows up, as he did with the Egyptians at the Red Sea. Having failed to destroy the woman, he turns his attention to the, the, the destruction of her children, the rest of the Jews and Christians around the world. And that's in Revelation 12:17. The background to this whole sequence of events is given in Daniel 9, verse 36 through to 12:1. Let's summarize that. After describing in verse 21 to 35 the anti-Semitic activities of Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of Antichrist in the 2nd century BC, the prophecy jumps forward in verse 36 to the Antichrist himself in the time leading up to mid-tribulation. In growing confidence, he acts without restraint, magnifying himself above every god, especially the god of Israel, and he'll seem to prosper until the tribulation is finished. He'll show no regard for the God of Abraham or the true Messiah or any other God, for he magnifies himself above them all. He'll honor a foreign God who is a God of war. This God will help him to conquer, so this God is really Satan, the dragon, in disguise. Before he attains world power at mid-tribulation, he's opposed by three kings, the kings of the south, north, and east, but he'll defeat them all. We'll see these three defeated kings in other prophecies also. At this point, he also enters the beautiful land, Israel. He takes over the whole Middle East, but is kept away from Edom, Moab, and Ammon, which corresponds to today's Jordan. This is because God has created a place in Jordan where the fleeing remnant of Israel will be kept safe during the Great Tribulation. Antichrist will set up his military headquarters in Israel between the Mediterranean and Dead Seas on the beautiful holy mountain in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. This is when he kills the two witnesses and sets up the abomination. Daniel 12.1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will arise. This is when Michael and his angels wage war on the dragon. He does this to fulfill his special mandate as protector of Israel. This verse continues, And there'll be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This is exactly the same as Jesus' description of the Great Tribulation. It concludes, And at that time your people, Israel, everyone who is found, written in the book, will be rescued. Jesus confirmed this promise, saying the elect nation Israel will be saved by his return.
This proves that when Jesus talked about the elect in Matthew 24, he was referring to Israel, not the church. Revelation 13 shows how Antichrist becomes world dictator at mid-tribulation, controlling the political, financial, and religious realms. It reveals the counterfeit satanic trinity. As the father gives his power and authority to the son, so the dragon gives his power and authority to the Antichrist beast to rule on the earth. As the Holy Spirit causes men to worship the Father and the Son, so the false prophet causes men to worship the dragon and the Antichrist. In Revelation 13, 1 and 2, John sees the dragon on the seashore, who empowers a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns, with crowns, and seven heads. The identification with the dragon is enhanced by the fact that the dragon also has seven heads and ten horns, that's in Revelation 12.3. Also because the dragon is red, and this beast is also seen as being red in Revelation 17. The redness speaks of all the blood it's shed. The sea represents the Gentile nations, and the beast pictures the ungodly Gentile world powers that have dominated Israel. The background to this is Daniel 7, where Daniel sees four beasts coming up from the sea, which represent four Gentile world empires, that's in verse 17. The first was like a lion, which was Babylon. The second was a bear, representing Medo-Persia, which conquered Babylon. It was lopsided, because the Persians were stronger than the Medes. The third was a speedy leopard, with four wings and four heads. This represented the next empire, Greece, under Alexander the Great. Then after he died, his empire was divided into four kingdoms. The fourth beast was different and more fearsome than the others, crushing all before it. It had ten horns, which represent ten kings, which arise from this kingdom. Then a little horn sprung up, boasting great things, and pulled out three of the horns. And then the little horn rules for three and a half years. This is the Antichrist. Thus, the fourth beast is the one with dominion in the tribulation. Initially, it's a confederation of ten kingdoms, until Antichrist takes it over at mid-tribulation by subduing the three kings that resist him. We saw that in Daniel 11. At this point, the term beast, which represents the kingdom, is also used to describe its king, the Antichrist, for the two are now synonymous as he exerts such total power over it. The vision also shows Christ returning at the end of the three-and-a-half-year reign of the Antichrist and destroying his kingdom and throwing him in the lake of fire and then establishing his everlasting messianic kingdom on earth. Thus this fourth beast is the final empire before Jesus establishes his kingdom. The other earlier beasts were not destroyed in this way. So although they lost their dominion, verse 12 says they had an extension of life for a time. This means that the Babylonian, Persian and Greek empires continued to influence the empires that came after them. Now we can understand the beast in Revelation 13. It's got seven heads, and John sees one head at a time coming out of the sea. These seven heads are the seven Gentile world powers that have dominated Israel. First Egypt, second Assyria, which... These were the ones before Daniel's time. Then third, Babylon, fourth, Persia, fifth, Greece, sixth, Rome, and then the seventh one is the final beast empire ruled over by the Antichrist. Now there are two main manifestations of the spirit of Antichrist in the world today, and both want to take over the world. The first is secular humanism, which denies both God and Christ, wanting to remove them from the public sphere. The second is Islam, which denies Christ as the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. So looking at present world conditions, it seems that the final beast will either emerge from a secular revived Roman Empire or from an Islamic caliphate. 
in Revelation 13:2. John saw it included features of a leopard, that's Greece, a bear, that's Persia, and a lion, that's Babylon. Whereas Daniel saw them as separate beasts, John saw the bigger picture that they're separate heads of the same beast. As in Daniel 7, the prophecy focuses on the final head of the beast, Antichrist's kingdom. In verse 3, he sees the seventh head receiving a fatal blow and being healed. And that's the Antichrist's death and resurrection, resulting in the whole world following after the beast and worshipping him, as well as the dragon who empowers him. And that's Revelation 13:4. This propels him to world dictatorship, lasting three and a half years, in which he boasts and blasphemes against the true God and instigates massive persecution of the saints who refuse to bow to him. He not only claims political power, but also the worship of all the unsaved earth dwellers whose names are not written in the book of life. So only the saved will refuse to worship him, but God will have the last word and he will judge those who side with his enemy. Now Revelation 17 tells us more about this beast with seven heads and ten horns on the seventh head. A harlot called Mystery Babylon rides this beast. She's a domineering religious system wedded to the world empire beast, which through all its manifestations has the general title of Babylon. The term mystery indicates that this is a new form of religion that developed in the church age, either apostate Christianity or Islam or a fusion of the two. In contrast to the Bride of Christ, the church age also brings forth this harlot religion that is unfaithful to God and continues into the tribulation, exerting a worldwide influence. Jesus said he'd spew it out of his mouth. Revelation 17.8 describes the death and resurrection of the final manifestation of the beast, the Antichrist, causing all the unsaved to follow him. And in verse 9, the seven heads are interpreted as seven mountains on which the harlot sits, which are symbolic of seven kingdoms, as we saw before. Then Revelation 17.10 adds, five kingdoms have fallen. That's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. One is, well, at the time John wrote, Rome was still in power. And then the other has not yet come, and that's either the revived Roman or Ottoman Empire. Then verse 11 says the resurrected Antichrist is an eighth head or kingdom and is also one of the seven kingdoms, but he'll be destroyed. He comes, you see, from the seventh kingdom, from the seventh head as a horn, as a king. But after his resurrection, his kingdom changes so much as he becomes absolute dictator and center of worship that it's essentially a new kingdom, an eighth kingdom that's personified in himself. In other words, the horn actually becomes a head. And this is exactly the picture of the little horn in Daniel 7, 8. Then Revelation 17, 12 to 14 says that the ten horns are an end-time confederation of ten kings who submit to the Antichrist and reign with him and who will join him in waging war against Christ when he returns at Armageddon. Finally, verse 16 and 17 tells us more about the radical changes that happen at mid-tribulation. The Antichrist wants total power, political, financial and religious. He even wants to be the sole center of worship. Thus he wants to be like Christ as Satan wants to be like God. Therefore, although the harlot has been useful to him in consolidating power, he ultimately plans to destroy her so that the only religion left is centered on the worship of himself. So when the ten kings totally submit to Antichrist at mid-tribulation, he commands them to totally destroy the, the harlot. Thus, although the harlot riding the beast is the dominant religion in the first half of the tribulation, at mid-tribulation, the beast she was riding turns on her and kills her. 
Let's now return to Revelation 13 to see the measures now that the Antichrist puts in place to establish his new religion now that the harlot's been destroyed. In verse 11 we meet his right-hand man, the false prophet, who initially appears to be like a lamb, a true religious leader. But he deceives many, for he's actually the mouthpiece of the dragon, enforcing Antichrist's control. The Antichrist, coming from the sea, is a Gentile, but this beast comes from the land, and so is a Jew. As the Holy Spirit leads men to worship the resurrected Son of God, the, this false prophet causes people to worship the resurrected Son of Satan, using satanic signs and wonders to convince them. He causes the image of the beast to be made, the abomination, an aid to worshipping the beast, and he's even able to make it appear to come to life and speak. His dragon-like nature is revealed when he causes all who refuse to worship the Antichrist to be killed. He reinforces this total control by an economic tool, the mark of the beast, requiring everyone to take a mark on their right hand or forehead, so that no one will be able to buy or sell without this mark, which consists of the Antichrist's name or its number, which is 666. In Hebrew and Greek, every letter is also a number, so every word has a number value. So one way to identify the Antichrist will be by the number of his name, 666. By the way, if you write Jesus in Greek, its number value is 888, and eight's the number of resurrection. So the mark is a mark of ownership that says, you belong to the beast. Everyone will be given a choice to swear loyalty to the Antichrist and worship him and thus qualify to receive his mark or to refuse it, in which case you'll be killed. If you hide, you'll be excluded from the economic system, but God warns anyone who takes the mark that they'll be eternally doomed. So Antichrist brings a global system into place using the advanced technology of computers, scanners and implanted microchips that's only recently been developed. It's designed to give the Antichrist total control over the political, economic and religious realms, forcing everyone to worship him. It also gives him a means of identifying and killing those who refuse the mark. Thus, most who get saved will do so in the first half of the tribulation, as most of the rest will take the mark to save their skins, but then be lost forever. As 2 Thessalonians 2, 10-12 says, those who reject Christ's salvation in the first half of the tribulation come under the strong delusion of Antichrist and submit to him and receive his mark, and so come under divine judgment. The mark will also be a major tool Antichrist uses for his program of mass persecution against the Jews and Christians in the Great Tribulation, for these are the main two groups who will reject the mark. As a result, there will be a great multitude of martyrdoms. Satan's endgame is to gain total control over mankind through the Antichrist, and he especially desires man's worship. Just as halfway through the 70th week, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he'd just worship him, so he'll make the same offer to Antichrist in the middle of the rerun 70th week. Antichrist will accept and receive supernatural satanic power and gain world dominion for a time. Revelation 13.4 shows that Satan's plan is to get all the world to worship him by getting them to worship Antichrist, his image, his authorized anointed representative in the flesh. In this he's copying God. For when we honor and worship the Son, we're also worshiping the Father. Mm -hmm.